one thing has seems to have changed a little bit is the willingness of everybody concerned to have a discussion with the patient in view of their comorbidities or the let's say the escalation of their condition as to, you know, who would be suitable for ITU, not. And I think those conversations are happening at a much earlier stage, which is good to see. As part of our response to coronavirus outbreak, we want to find out what it's like to be working on the front lines. And who better to do that than some of the people who are writing for the BMJ regularly. Earlier on, we spoke to Matt Morgan and David Oliver about secondary care. Last week, it was Helen Salisbury and Claire Gerarda about primary care. We're back on secondary care. And again, we have Matt Morgan with us. Matt, could I get you to introduce yourself for for people? Yeah, hi everybody. My name is Matt Morgan. I'm an intensive care consultant based in Cardiff and also a guest columnist for the BMJ. And joining Matt, we have uh, Partha Carr. Partha, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, um, I'm Partha. I'm a consultant uh, specialising in diabetes and endocrinology, but uh, also do general medicine and also work in the community and uh, obviously a BMJ blogger as well. Yes. So um, we'll come back to to Matt in a second. Um, But Partha, we haven't heard from you yet about how your working life has has changed. What's your what's your week been like? What what have you been doing sort of day to day on the ward? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'll probably start off by just acknowledging uh, what people like Matt have been doing, because I think it's fair to say, and we've seen that in a local trust, the brunt how it has been with our ITU colleagues, respiratory colleagues. Um, coming back to us, our role has been, we have switched off most of our, well, if not uh, everything off our face-to-face, and uh, our role has been to coordinate the response across a number of the long-term condition specialties, bringing them back into general medicine. And uh, in our zone, so to speak, uh, it was rheumatology, dermatology, uh, ourselves, obviously, and endocrinology, diabetes. And then we joined hands with our surgical colleagues because we had converted the whole area to a zone that needed to be looked after with COVID or non-COVID patients. So it was it was more coordinating everybody together, all their juniors and their registrars and their consultants. And um, as usual, a lot of humor around with people being asked to come and do general medicine. But it's been, it's been interesting. It's been fun. Uh, I think things are sl- showing signs of improving. But yeah, normal week has been ward rounds, um, you know, making sure the juniors have been okay and um, sometimes doing some of the virtual clinics and... Uh, uh, some clinic we have kept open, namely the foot clinic, the high-end foot clinic, the vascular surgeons. But that's about that's pretty much a week, I would have thought. Mm. And um, we'll, I think uh, we'll pick up with you about about those virtual outpatient clinics in a second. But Matt, um, before then, how's your week going? Yeah, so I, I think if you read the news, you'll see words like ICU is coping well with demand written a lot. And in many ways, that's true. Where I work locally, yes, we've got beds to care for people and we've got staff and so on. But I think the word coping does hide the fact that we are coping because of the extraordinary things that people like Partha, other colleagues, nursing staff and others are doing. You know, the fact that elective work has gone, the fact that outpatient work has gone, the fact that we aren't seeing many of those other peoples who would normally come through intensive care, be it trauma or other things. So coping is a great word and it's true, but it 
kind of hides the fact that it's a very abnormal environment in which we are coping. Yeah, I probably would absolutely uh, add to that. Now, there's no question there's, you know, we have created the capacity uh, at the expense of something else. And I think that's quite important to keep in mind. There is obviously those mixed views about the Nightingale hospitals being empty and not needing it. But let's not forget how much effort and time it's taken. And uh, I think from a general medical point of view, my worry has been, you know, you'd go around the wards, it's, there are empty beds, which looks amazing, but there's none of your regular patients. And so, you know, and I'm sure we'll touch upon it, but that, that is definitely a, an area of concern as going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we wanted to talk about today. Um, the patients who require care that isn't COVID related um, and, and what's happening to them. So, Partha, you mentioned there that you are doing some virtual clinics. And we know last week we spoke to Helen and Claire about the fact that GP's workload is all um, become online. So uh, that's happening uh, with you as well. And how is that going? Yeah, so we, I mean, we're in a specialty which probably is a bit fortunate and lends itself a little bit towards it. So, for example, if you take respiratory medicine, it's going to be technically difficult in some occasions because you have to see the patient examine. On the other hand, if you look at some of the work that we do for endocrinology or, for example, in type 1 diabetes, um, or you, what you need is data a lot. And then if you've got visualization of the patient, you probably can do a lot of the work. A lot of them are follow-ups. And uh, in our world of type 1 diabetes, especially with all the downloadable stuff that we have had, you can do a lot of work virtually. I mean, we've been lucky from that respect because we have obviously got a lot of technology available on the NHS, which we can use to the advantage. So uh, I think a lot of it has switched, switched reasonably comfortably. Um, there are some which are slightly hampered by the fact that you, well, patients are not able to go and do the regular blood tests, understandably. So but interestingly, because most of the conversations have turned out to be more about reassurance and what will happen to me and what, this, what is the situation with diabetes. So it's been more of reassuring the general public and uh, that, that's how it's been, really. And obviously in, in diabetes, if someone's fairly stable, they do uh, a lot of self-management. So mm. is that all going OK? Are people uh, able to do that? Are they even perhaps feeling more or taking more of that that responsibility on? Yeah, I mean, I think it will be interesting to see how it pans out. But one of the things that we have been pushing a lot on is making people aware of sick day rules in diabetes. And that's a big feature of our local work as well as national work to say, being aware of what sick day rules are. And I think a lot of it, as you mentioned, has been reinforcing some of the self-management things. Um, so there's a mixture of uh, where how people are responding uh, with the virtual clinics. Um, it's 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 an interesting feature in its own. I mean that itself has got some concerns about the virtual clinics and where things will progress with that in the future. But it's been an interesting experience for sure. Mm. Now, Matt, obviously in in your base for the hospital, people can't do self care. That's that's not a a feature. And critical care obviously exists outside of the the world of COVID. Are you seeing as many patients coming in uh, requiring critical care for for non-COVID reasons? No, certainly the vast majority of our work, probably in excess of 80% over the last four weeks or five weeks or so, has been admissions because of or associated with critical illness from COVID. Although actually seeing patients with things like diabetic 
ketostosis. Mm. That's been a relatively um, regular presentation, yeah. but with COVID in yep. the yep. background. Uh, and so these issues of self-care and sick days that Partha has mentioned, you know, so important when people are at home with an illness in itself, which can uh, cause havoc, I guess, for, for people with chronic health conditions. But no, you're right. You know, the majority of the work has been COVID. And in many ways, structuring your ward round in your work at something so exclusively does also make that day slightly easier in many ways. You know, we are now looking for those problems we know about. We've got routines about what blood tests we're doing at what times. The junior staff don't have to kind of guess what the next step is that they are experienced and familiar with a single condition. But it also, of course, brings risks and problems that we can't switch off that part of our brain that also has to think, is this another problem? Uh, and we have seen patients, you know, with uh, what was being called COVID, that quickly becomes obvious that actually they've got another condition. And I think the human factors side and cognitive error side needs to uh, remain vigilant really for that. Mm. And Partha, um, you know, Matt mentioned that sort of acute uh, problem. Um, how are you dealing with, with sort of exacerbations like that? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um if I'm very honest, from the ward point of view, um, the majority of work has been done, as mentioned previously, by our respiratory colleagues. But when we have seen patients, one thing has seems to have changed a little bit is the willingness of everybody concerned to have a discussion with the patient in view of their comorbidities or the, let's say, the escalation of their condition as to, you know, who would be suitable for ITU, not. And I think those conversations are happening at a much earlier stage, which is good to see uh, in its own right. I think from our point of view, it's been a learning curve. Um, I think uh, Matt mentioned about the switching off bit. And I think for a lot of us physicians, we have been depending on a lot on feedback from our respiratory colleagues. We have been a lot in touch with our colleagues from London, which have been very useful. Um, and one, for example, if you hone down into one area, let's say my specialty area, what we are seeing is um, there is certainly more admission of ketoacidosis in type 2 diabetes, which isn't normally seen. Mm. Now, we don't know whether that's because people are more dehydrated, more ill, but that's certainly something which we hadn't seen till it was picked up by colleagues. So I think there's been a lot of uh, learning um, about fluid balance, etc. Normally with ketoacidosis, you apply in with fluids, our ITU colleagues are saying just be aware of the whole ARDS scenario. So there's been a lot of learning as we have gone along, to be honest, on the job. So um, and it's been it's been interesting. It's been interesting, I would say. Matt, when we talked before, David mentioned that um, part of the the change that's going on with this, part of the uh, you know, there's there's new science to learn. Um, we're still kind of, uh, as Partha is saying there, figuring out uh, some of the strange things that, that this virus is doing. And it sort of re-energized him. How are you feeling about that? Do, are you enjoying the challenge of... Uh... Yeah, I guess, you know, there's a, there's a few challenges. And if this virus wasn't so uh, deadly and terrifying, it would be fascinating. And certainly the science aspects, you know, I'm, I'm a researcher as well as work clinically. And we are running a variety of uh, trials uh, in Cardiff, national trials, which we are running locally on immune modulation and on prevention and so on. So that, you know, that's fascinating. But I guess equally fascinating are those human responses to things. And, you know, locally, 
in my hospital that's happened we have people that we are now working with regularly that we we identify with and can share things with we have a place to go and to spend time with not only our colleagues but nursing staff and health care assistants and others um, and you know I really hope many of these aspects when the dust settles if the dust settles will remain because they are as valuable actually as the scientific lessons that we are learning mm. and Partha, do you have- yeah I, 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 I would probably completely echo that and also add in a few things you know processes which Let's say as general physicians, you would find extremely frustrating. Uh, For example, you would say, you know, in our hospital, you'll have the term that is used called medically fit for discharge and you'd have patients unable to go home. And uh, at one stage locally, you know, I think last winter, we had about 230, 240 people who couldn't go home. And then at the moment, you know, we are down to 2025. And you're thinking, well, what? actually happen. So when you go around and ask people, a lot, a lot of things are very simple. They say, oh, it's because we have now gone to one merged form and you don't have to fill in three different forms for four different organizations. And that's not, as mentioned, just down to COVID. It's made people just do things differently, which would have been common sense to do. And I think that's quite important that we keep those going because, and again, you know, Matt mentioned the team structures. I mean, people, you can say it's old fashioned or whatever. I've always loved working in teams. And if anything, you know, lessens your love for doing general medicine, it's the, you know, the, the, you get into a routine nowadays where you go to the wards and you don't know anybody. And then you go the next day and, well, you're the only constant factor left as a consultant. And there is that camaraderie, which is quite nice to see. There is the team that is nice to see. And for want of a better word, you know, not everything in the past was bad. There are some good stuff as well. And uh, some of them seem to have come back and hopefully they remain. Mm. Yeah, and actually, to to also speak up for non-clinical people in the NHS, you know, hospital managers and departmental managers sometimes in the past have had a a bad or a difficult rap. And, you know, actually, what we've seen in this crisis, which happens anyway, but is just, uh, you know, expanded even more now, is that team structure, you know, now also includes those people, you know, the IT department who actually can make work in much more efficient and better we've got people in finance locally who are now coming and participating in an action log within the department to help solve clinical problems Uh, and i think when those walls are broken down when you're sitting in the same room as those people you know a lot of those criticisms uh, you know don't don't pan out and actually they've been fundamental key parts of the team as well it's nice to have that reminder of the kind of shared enterprise of the NHS across all the different different aspects of it. So we touched on um, virtual clinics and things. Um, are you hearing from your patients, Partha, about things that they would like to remain uh, at the end of all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think what we are finding is a twofold thing. I think what I always sort of give a bit of degree of caution around digital is that if you look around the world, okay, COVID is COVID and it's pandemic and different times. But if you look at use of digital technology throughout the world, by nature, it has always favored people from a higher socioeconomic strata, just because of the way it works. And ironically, if anything comes out of the COVID-19 work after which we finish, apart from age, a big determinant will be socioeconomic determinants, right, as to who suffer the most. So if you look at patients, I think we need to be careful about the rollout of virtual. I think what we should go to and what patients would like 
is having the opportunity to choose what type of visit they might want to do. It may be a face-to-face, it may be the same person who might want to do a face-to-face probably once a year, but the others can be done virtually rather than one or the other. And I think that choice remaining for patients and that flexibility would, I reckon, be vital. So, for example, I look after adolescents and for them, asking them to turn up to hospital four times a year when you're 21 years old, why do we always get surprised that people don't turn up for clinic? You know, in a modern world, of course, they would like more virtual setup, more quicker, faster access. So I think that flexibility remaining is going to be quite important and we definitely would push for that. Yeah, and I think we're also kind of moving into the realm of considering rehab, recovery and survivorship in Mm. critical illness, you know, surviving to get to the ward. You know, that's great in terms of an ICU mortality statistic, but that means nothing to the person who's just got to the ward. You know, what people want to do is is to return to their lives, uh, not only to survive, but to have survivorship. Uh, and so things like intensive care follow-up clinics, which in the past have been very sporadic where they were set up, perhaps using some digital technologies rather than getting people back to the hospital, which may spur their PTSD memories and there's mobility issues, you know, again, as an option, as Partha said, is really key. Um, But and also this issue around health inequalities, you know, sadly, all over the country, especially I'm I'm looking at a mountain in front of my window in the Welsh Valleys, you know, disease is sadly an illness of the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, And we have to think about those aspects when improving and delivering services, I guess. And and just one final plea to people listening, we've talked about non-COVID disease and seeing these numbers plummet in the attendances of children, of adults, critical illness attendances. That's great in many ways, but also as a plea, we are still here. We are still open for business. Uh, If you have chest pain, if you have severe illness, if you have severe and controlled diabetes, Uh, then we are here, the NHS is here to look after you. And the last thing we want is to see an increase in amounts of death or mortality related to non-COVID disease uh, with people concerned about coming to the hospital. Yeah, couldn't have put it better. I think that's been, I don't know what you feel, Matt, I I think think that's been the message which I think we needed to be probably more consistent on. At the height of this, we have all said quite rightly, stay at home, save the NHS. And I suspect for a lot of people in their love for the NHS, they probably have taken it to the point where they haven't come in at all. And I think that's where I think we need to get back to whichever way we look at the business as usual. But it's more about, you know, if you're ill, please do come. That's that's what we all need to be there for. Great. Well, that's a good, uh, good message to leave this on for patients and for your primary care colleagues as well, perhaps. Um, Great. Well, Matt, Partha, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks all. Thanks, Partha. Thank you. So that was Matt Morgan and Partha Carr, two of the BMJ's columnists. I'll link to their writing in the podcast text of this so you can find out more. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back very soon with more talk evidence, this time looking at the natural history of COVID-19 and how this is affecting the patients who are already enrolled in research projects before this all began. We also have more well-being, talking about losing a colleague and how difficult that can be. 
So subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Until next time, I'm Dr. Jarvis. Thanks for listening.